Hey, it's Jeff Woods. We wanted to ask you for a quick favor. We'd like to get to know you better, which is why we put together a quick quiz that literally takes less than a minute to complete. This will help us learn more about you so we can better serve you this year through our content and our ads. If you'd take one minute to pause this episode and go to theonething.com slash podcast quiz. That's the one thing with the number one in the URL.com slash podcast quiz. It'd mean the world to us. Thanks and enjoy this episode. This is the one thing podcast where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. My name's Jeff Woods. I'm the vice president here at the one thing team. The reason that we do this show. The reason that we work with people in our Living Your One Thing membership, which you can learn more about at theonething.com slash membership, is because we spend 25% of our life, if not more, at work. And many of our workplaces are broken. We lack fulfillment. We feel like we're not in control. We lack clarity on where we are going. And if we're being honest, many of us feel like When we wake up every single day, we're not trading our life for something of value. Is that a problem for you? If so, you've come to the right place. The person you are going to meet has been recognized as Wharton's top-rated teacher for five years and is one of the world's 25 most influential management thinkers. He is the author of three New York Times best-selling books, Give and Take, which is prominently displayed on Jay's bookcase, Originals, and he co-authored Option B with Facebook COO's Sheryl Sandberg. The conversation you're going to hear today was originally recorded during our monthly One Thing webinar series. Every month, we bring on a best-selling author and introduce them to you live, hosting a training and giving you the opportunity to ask them questions. If you would like the ability to be on our next live One Thing webinar, go to the One Thing dot com slash webinar. And that's with the number one in the URL, the one thing.com slash webinar. Our hope for you throughout this conversation is that you can get clarity on one thing that you can do such that by doing it will allow you to find more fulfillment in what you do professionally. With that, let's get into this conversation with New York Times bestselling author, Adam Grant. Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch, snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash ONE50 and use code ONE50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. All right, everyone, welcome to our monthly One Thing webinar series. 
on the fact that work doesn't have to suck and find fulfillment in what you do. I'm really grateful to have Adam Grant here with us today. He's a New York Times bestselling author of Give and Take, as well as Originals, and he co-authored Option B with uh, Facebook CEO, COO Sheryl Sandberg. Uh, the guy's just a beast. He's one of the top professors at Wharton. Uh, many companies seek him out as an organizational psychologist, really just to try to figure out how do we fix the work environment? How do we create a culture in an environment where we can actually be happy trading our life every single day? Um, before we get into the training, I want to, the reason that we brought Adam on is because the idea of the one thing is that you live an extraordinary life. You live a life of no regret. And Adam, out of curiosity, what percentage of someone's life do they spend working? Oh, when I did the math, it's at minimum a quarter of your life. And depending on how many years you work and how many hours you work, it could, for, for a lot of us, be at least a third. And then if you subtract sleep, it becomes, for most people, about half. Half their life. And what percentage of people do you think actually have fulfillment in what they do professionally? Oh, there's a huge debate about that, but I think it's far fewer than there should be, right? I, I think it's, it's a great tragedy that so many of us spend the majority of our waking hours working and don't find what we do that meaningful or motivating. Mm -hmm. Now, for the people who are here live, how many of you have read The One Thing out of curiosity? That way I can just make sure that we cater this to you. If so, put the number one in the chat box. If not, go ahead and do the number two. Awesome. So the vast majority... Ah, reading now. I love it. So the idea is that every single, the idea is every single day we wake up with this laundry list of things that we could do. And yet, usually there's one thing or a handful of true priorities that we should do. The things that will generate the massive impact in our world in our life. And that can go to any area of your life. Adam, when we talk about finding fulfillment in what we do, first and foremost, what's the problem? How did you even get into this? So I think, I think the reason I got into this was I was, uh, I was studying psychology in college. I signed up for an organizational psychology class and I had this, this great professor, Richard Hackman, who had basically taken all the jobs that he had kind of wanted at some point in his life and he said, I'm going to spend my career studying those. So he wanted to be um, a, a conductor of an orchestra, and he went and studied how to make orchestras you know, more effective. He, at some point, had been curious about uh, being a spy, and so he went and studied the U.S. intelligence agencies and how to improve their teams. Mm. He uh, always wanted to be an airline pilot, so he studied cockpit crews and uh, how, to, you know, how to make them work better together. And you know, the funny part of it was that he hated working in teams, and so he spent his whole life studying teams in all these, these places, trying to figure out how in the world do you work with other people? And I was, I was just captivated by the idea that, you know, I, I had never, I hated the question growing up, what do you want to be when you grow up? I didn't want to be anything. I wanted to do many things. And so I thought, I guess for me, my one thing was going to be to say, well, maybe I can make my job fixing other people's jobs. And then I could also go and, you know, study all these interesting worlds and try to make work suck a little bit less. Why does work suck for so many people? Oh, how many hours do we have? <laughs> One. <laughs> uh, I, I actually just, um, just finished doing some research with colleagues at Facebook on this, where uh, we had data on, on what people at Facebook wanted out of work. And after basic needs being met, you know, sort of getting, getting paid, um, you know, having a life outside work, when you looked at what really motivated people at work, there were, there were three big factors. And this was true around the world. It was true across generations. People wanted, one, a career where they got to do you know, work that would challenge them, that would allow them to learn and grow, work that was meaningful. Two, they wanted a community 
They wanted to, to have real connections and relationships with others. And then three, they wanted a cause. They wanted a sense of purpose that, that was larger than themselves. Mm. And, you know, I, I think you can apply that to any workplace and say, okay, you know, how, how much do you really feel like what you do is, you know, a worthwhile career? It, it makes you part of a community where you really belong and you have a cause that you believe in. And I think that in far too many workplaces, uh, either none of those boxes are checked uh, or not all of them are checked, right? And it, it's not enough to say, well, we, we give you meaningful work. Therefore, you don't have to have any friends at work. Or, you know, we, we have a great community. So forget your career, right? You should just be glad to be part of this organization. And yeah, I think that, that that's a lot of why, why so many people are, are not fulfilled at work. Well, I'd love to do a poll for everybody who's on here live. How many of you, and this is a yes or no, how many of you feel like what you are doing is worthwhile? You feel like you're a part of a strong community and you feel like what you're doing is supporting a, a greater cause that you really believe in? I'm su- actually surprised at the number of yeses that we are getting. Ah, there here come the no's. All right. So I'd say it's at least 50-50. That's super interesting. So Adam, what do you, in all the research you've done, you've worked with some of the most notable companies in the world, where do we begin our journey to making work suck less and finding fulfillment <laughs> in what we do? Oh, that's that's such a hard question. I think I can I can tell you where I'm at in the journey right now and sure. kind of where it's landed me, which is I basically spent the, the past 15 years studying work and how to make it better. And I've mostly done that by responding to invitations that I get from organizations. And some of that has been really fun, right? I've, I've gotten to work with, with Google and the NBA and the Gates Foundation, and I've loved those projects. I've, I've become increasingly convinced, though, in part through, through doing those projects, that if we really want to learn, we should go to the extremes. If you, know, if you think about, if you wanted a, like, the best possible workout tips, the people you'd want to learn from are Olympic athletes, right? Because they're, they're on the extreme of, of fitness and pushing the human body to its limits. And even if you don't want to be one of those athletes, there's probably something cool you can learn from those people who have dedicated their lives to it and, you know, and really excelled at it. And so I guess where, where I kind of landed on this is I said, what I want to do is I want to invite myself in to what I think are, are workplaces that go to the extreme on each of the things that we all want to, want to experience or master. And so I've, uh, I've just started a podcast with Ted called, called Work Life, uh, where we do this. And in each episode, uh, I go into an unconventional workplace and I zoom in on the thing that they take to the, to the extreme. And so, uh, but the, you know, the big aha is that I think too often we, we close the door to learning opportunities because we say, well, that other workplace is not, it's not like the culture at my organization. Or I can't learn from somebody else's job because their job is different from mine. And I think that's a good thing, right? You want to learn from, from people who, who push whatever you want to understand um, you know, to a much greater extreme. And so that's that's to me where this starts, and we could dive into some of the specifics. But that yeah, that's and, and, and I really want to cater this. I want to cater this to the people who made made the commitment to showing up here live, folks. For those of you, feel free to put your questions in around where you're really struggling in finding fulfillment in what you do, and I'm happy to field those to Adam so that we can really customize this experience for you. You know, I'll, Adam, I'll go to you. Your own personal journey in finding fulfillment in what you do. Did you just pop out of the womb being super purposeful and, and, and just loving every single minute? Or was there a time in your life when you just felt like there wasn't fulfillment in what you were doing? Oh, I think, I think anybody who tells you that they have had you know, no moments in life where they weren't fulfilled uh, are either really lacking in self-awareness or really seriously lying to you. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think I think we all have those moments. Uh, I've I've certainly had many of them, and it's it's kind of it's only intensified my interest in in trying to figure out how we can right. you know, fix work. But 
when I think about some of the standout moments, one of the the bigger ones actually was uh, when I was in college. Uh, I was a I was a springboard diver in high school, and uh, me and, too. Seriously? Yeah, man. Speedo and everything. Wait, there there are about four of us, right? <laughs> one of the yeah. odds. There you go. Uh, that's crazy. You will relate to this. Yes, for sure. So you know, I I, I should not have been a diver uh, in the sense that I I walked I walked like Frankenstein. I couldn't jump very high. You know, not a lot of flexibility. Uh, I had a once like a couple hour argument with my coach. I said that I was twisting to the right, and he said, "No, you're twisting to the left." And I, I literally thought, I would, "Yeah, exactly." I thought I was twisting the opposite direction. So. Uh, I had a lot of disadvantages, and um, I, but I really fell in love with the sport, and I worked hard at, hard at it. And eventually, I got good enough that I was able to dive in college. And uh, my freshman year, I realized, you know, I'd, in high school, I'd, I'd had some success by by outworking people who were more physically talented than me. And in college, everyone worked as hard as I did, and they were more talented. And I, was, I, I just felt like I'd, I'd hit my ceiling. And so, after my freshman year, I quit, and I just felt completely aimless because I'd spent the previous six years. Just obsessed with diving. Uh, you know, I'd, in, a, in a typical season, I would practice anywhere from four to nine hours a day. I would go home and watch, you know, tapes of practice in slow motion. I'd go out on the trampoline to work on skills, and it just literally consumed my life. And I, I didn't know who I was when that was gone. Mm-hmm. Is that is it just me, or did you go through that too? Uh, no, I still see myself as the guy that shouldn't be in a speedo. <laughs> do you do you also still occasionally wake up from nightmares where you're lost in midair and crashing? No, it's, 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 it's when I do the face plant. <laughs> <laughs> Those are always fun. That's super interesting. Um, do you guys want to field the questions as they come in as well? And let me know when you got something good. Uh, you know, from these companies that you're working with, you look at the Googles, the Facebooks, the Disneys. What's the one thing that they started doing that allowed them to transform their work culture? It's a really interesting question. I, I think that there's there's a pattern that I see across them, which is they're all really open to running experiments. Mm. So a lot of the the organizations that I work with, you know, people people are trying to figure out how to solve a problem or where to innovate, and they they argue and debate for months, sometimes years. I, I worked with an investment bank at one point that had literally debated a, a dilemma for six years. And you know, my response back to them was, "Stop debating, start experimenting." <laughs> you want to, you, you actually want to, you want to try out all the different ideas on the table and figure out who's right. Mm. And I think that that's something I see in the, you know, in each of the companies that has either built a culture that that people are thrilled to be part of, or that's been able to change a culture. Is people have said, "Look, we're we're not afraid to experiment, and we may get things wrong." And you know, I hear a lot of that resistance um, or resistance to that, and you know, in, in many workplaces where people say, "But." what if we try this and it doesn't work, then our employees are going to lose faith in us and then there's going to be change fatigue and cynicism. And I say, yeah, that's a risk. Yeah, I mean, it can happen, right? But what, a lot of that depends on how you frame it. If you come in and you say, look, we, we believe in having a learning culture. And that means we're going to try out some initiatives, you know, even, even probably every month that are not going to work. Um, and that's the only way we can get better. I think if you maintain that mentality, uh, it's a lot easier than to continue evolving your culture as opposed to freezing it. Well, let, let's flip it because you've got a lot of people on here who are in an employee position and they're they're not in the position where they actually control the culture of the organization. You know, Scott even asked, when is it time to leave an unhealthy workplace? What do you say to that employee 
who is not finding fulfillment in what they do and they want to? Where can they begin to explore that in their current capacity? Well, I think there's there's actually some really cool research on this that, that Amy Resneski and Jane Dutton did on what they call job crafting, which is the idea that you know most most jobs were designed by a manager mm-hmm. who you know put a bunch of of expectations and responsibilities in there that probably don't align perfectly with with your values, your strengths, and your interests. And what what Amy and Jane observed studying a bunch of different kinds of, of jobs and organizations was that people didn't just take those job descriptions and say aha, I will now do them exactly as the person you know, who held this job before me does, you know, does them. They said, I'm, I'm going to customize this. And I'm going to be, you know, instead of a passive recipient, I'm going to be an active architect in my own job. Mm. And so I think the, you know, then the question is, if you want to craft your job, uh, I guess the, the first thing I would ask is, what are you looking for? Right? Do, you, do you have strengths that are un, unused? And can you figure out who could benefit from those? Or what kinds of projects those strengths could serve in your organization? Do you have you know, skills that you want to develop or learn that you, know, you can make a case for why it would be valuable to learn them? And then the second thing I would, I would ask is, who are the people who maybe above you in the hierarchy have been consistently supportive of job crafting, you know, who, have, who have given you know, their own teams a little bit of flexibility to say, yeah, you know what, you can, you can change 8% of how you spend your time if you can convince me that, you know, that this is valuable for your development and for, you know, for the organization. And so, you know, I think once, once you identify those people, what you do is you go to them and you ask for advice and you say, look, here are the kinds of adjustments I would love to make to, you know, to my job. I know you're somebody who supported a ton of that around here. Um, where would you start? And then at minimum, you'll get some good suggestions. Best case scenario, that person will step up and become your advocate and try to get you involved in those kinds of activities. I'm putting myself in the position of the, of the person here who's listening to this, who says, I want to have that type of conversation. And then all the limiting beliefs and fears start to come in where I feel like if I say that I want this, it means that I'm not satisfied here. And there might be consequences for that. In all these companies that you work with, when you start working with senior leadership, would they want to know? Would they want you to have that conversation? What have, what have you actually found? Well... I guess I'd say if they don't want to know, I'm not sure they're going to last very long. I mean, isn't isn't that one of the core responsibilities of leaders at the end of the day to, mm-hmm. to you know not just want to know but to care about what your experience is like? And you know, I, I even see this in you know in cultures that are customer obsessed. You know, I, I've I've thought for years that if you put your customers first, uh, that you know that that means your employees are going to come second, mm. and. Almost every customer-obsessed organization that I've worked with has said, yeah, we're totally customer-obsessed. And you know how we get the best service for our customers? We treat our employees well, and we put them first. Uh, I've had a a fascinating set of conversations with Tony Shea at Zappos on that. And and Tony said, we're actually clear about this. We we have a hierarchy. We put our people first, and we put our customers second. And we believe that that's the only way that you can put your customers first, because it's really hard for miserable people to create happy customers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that you treat your employees spills over to affect the way they treat their clients. Mm. And um, you know, I think that, that most, most leaders who have you know, a fair amount of wisdom get that intuitively, or they've, they've learned it the hard way at some point over the, the course of their careers. Uh, one, one interesting thing, though, that, that we've done is, uh, going back to this investment bank that I worked with, they realized uh, as they were, they were trying to figure out, they were having trouble attracting and retaining junior analysts and associates. And they realized that they had a lot of leaders who cared and were interested in knowing, you know, why, why are these people coming? But they only got that information during exit interviews. Mm. 
And I thought that is the worst possible time, you know, to, to say, by the way, when you're out, you're on your way out the door, what would have kept you here? And so we turned that around. And I said, let's do entry interviews, where in week one, you ask the kinds of questions you would normally ask in an exit interview. Why did you arrive? What are your goals in the next five years? What's your favorite project you've ever worked on? And, you know, what was so energizing about that? And if we get that information early on, number one, you feel like you have a voice. Number two, you know, your, your manager then has information to try to you know, sort of customize what kinds of opportunities you get. And number three, it's just way less awkward to have that discussion in week one, as opposed to, you know, I realized after four years of working together, I should probably ask you what your aspirations are. Mm-hmm. I've got two different types of people in my head. I've got the leaders who have the opportunity and even the responsibility to craft the culture that people find fulfillment in what they do. And then you've got the employees or the workers who have a responsibility themselves to look in the mirror and say, I got DNA in this because I choose to go to work every single day. This is where I think your book Originals really comes in. I, I feel like people don't want to ruffle the feathers. They mm-hmm. don't want to go against the grain. Your book is awesome. And by the way, folks, since I know many of you are Audible fans, if you go to audible.com slash one thing, or if you text the word one thing to the number 500-500, you can get a free trial on Audible and get originals or add-ons to a give and take for free, which is thebomb.com. Talk to us a little bit about that. How is it that all these nonconformists are starting to move the world? Well, I think you're you're absolutely right. In the data, people are, are overwhelmingly afraid of rocking the boat. Uh, there, there was one study that that actually shocked me, where people were asked about their their boldest idea or their most important suggestion, and the question was, "What did you do with it?" And eighty five percent of people said, "I never told anyone." And then, if you break down why, you find out, okay, a lot of those people are afraid that you know that they might get punished, or you know that they might embarrass themselves, or they might be threatening their boss. It's just as common, maybe even more common for people to say, you know what, I'm not afraid something bad has happened, but I just don't believe anything good will happen, right? It's, it's an exercise in futility. Mm. And I think if you put those two things together, fear and futility hold a lot of us back from, you know, from championing our, our best ideas. And I will say that uh, <laughs> I, I lived this because when I was a high school senior, uh, I co-founded a, an online social network. I was trying to figure out what to do with uh, with the decision about where to go to college. And uh, I just on a whim, I, I sent in an application to Harvard and I got a letter back a couple months later saying I'd been accepted. And I, I felt like you know, it, was, it was an amazing opportunity and I should go. But I also was, was terrified of, of going halfway across the country and not knowing anybody. And so um, I started searching for, for other people who were, who were there, who were going to be there. And I ended up finding a, a bunch of you know, potential future classmates. So we started a little email list. And we, we just kept adding people as we met other people who were going to join our, our freshman class. And by the spring, we had over 100 people who met at a pre-frosh weekend. And when we arrived in the fall, we had connected more than an eighth of the entering class. And so we had started Harvard's first online social network. This was 1999. And when we got to campus, we shut that network down mm. because we, we thought we know each other. Why, why do we need you know an online connection now? Oops. And then five years later, Mark Zuckerberg started <laughs> literally in the house next door. Now, I, I don't know how to code, right? I'm not a computer scientist. I never would have had the vision for Facebook. But for me, it was such a clear example of saying, you know, this this idea just it does, I, I just didn't see potential in it, right? I didn't realize that 
the, you know, connecting people online was going to be so powerful. And so mm-hmm. I didn't do anything with it. And my hope is that, <laughs> that no one else ends up in those shoes, right? And that anybody who has an idea says, you know what? Yeah, I could, I could regret, you know, failing, but what I'll really regret in the long run is, is failing to try if I never mm-hmm. give it a shot at all. And I can tell you uh, that my co-founders and I have definitely had our moments of regret. Yeah, you've done okay though. You know, for the people who are here live, I'm curious how many of you have ever worked really hard and looked up at the end of the day and thought to yourself, I know I was busy. And did I even get anything done? If so, go ahead and put yes in the questions box. I want to see how many... Okay, yeah. Overwhelming majority. Um, what's been super interesting about this journey, Adam, getting to work with people um, in our Living Your One Thing membership and, and interacting with people from the podcast, everybody wants more out of life, and yet they don't really understand how to manage their time so that when they look up at the end of the day, they feel fulfilled. They feel like they made a difference. I'm curious for you, you're a professor at Wharton. You write all these amazing books. I've got to imagine you've got some pretty high demands on your time. Is that fair to say? I definitely have more demands than I used to. Yeah. Okay. Talk to us about how you strike this counterbalance between being a professor and then going all in on your work. Well, I think some of it is, you know, is, is part of the design of a professor job. So I do all my teaching in the fall. And you know, I, I expect going in that I'm not going to get much, you know, much writing or research done you know, from, from August to December. And then January through July, I kind of switch gears and I, I do my other job. And what's nice about that is, you know, in January, I have all these ideas that I'm, I'm itching to go and study and, and share. And then by the time July rolls around, I cannot wait to get back in the classroom. And so my, my job is never boring that way. Mm. Uh, I don't know how generalizable that is, but uh, I think that the parts that are, are after, um, after I, I wrote Give and Take, uh, I, I started getting, you know, I guess I was more visible outside of, you know, outside the average tower. And I started getting more requests, you know, from different kinds of companies. I started getting, you know, emails from strangers more. Uh, I had, you know, people wanting to talk who weren't my students. And it was just really hard to fit it all in. And mm-hmm. uh, I also, you know, went from basically, you know, working all the time to having three kids. And so I was trying to figure out how to manage it all. And I realized that I needed to just be clear about my priorities. And so, uh, what I sat down and did was I said, all right, who are all the different kinds of people that are reaching out? Like, what, who, who are they? And who am I actually trying to be helpful to? Mm. And I ended up sort of, I guess, prioritizing by saying it's going to be family first, uh, student second, colleagues third, and everyone else fourth. Mm. And that was hard at first because, you know, what it meant was I was going to say no to some of my own colleagues. But at some point, it dawned on me that I didn't become a professor to help other professors. Right. I, I became a professor because I, I you know, I wanted, I, I, I was, I was really affected by, by the meaningful work that my own professors did. And I wanted to try to pay some of that forward. And so, you know, that made it really easy, right? When, when there was a trade-off, I'm always going to put students before colleagues. And, you know, that also meant that as people moved down the list, I would, you know, if I couldn't help them, I would try to find somebody else who could help them. And uh, I think that that made a pretty big difference. What are some of the things that you see people constantly saying yes to that they really should be saying no to? Oh, I think, you know, that beyond sort of the choices about who you help, I think that one of the other big decisions you have to make is, is how are you going to help? And, you know, I, I made this mistake pretty systematically. I see a lot of other people do it too, 
if you if you are basically just responding to the requests that you get, you're stuck in reactive mode and you'll end up being a jack of all trades. Mm-hmm. Right. So you you help in whatever ways people ask, which may or may not align with with what you're good at or what you enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a great place to say, okay, you know, from an enjoyment and skill perspective, what's your one thing that you can contribute that nobody else can as well as you? Uh, or you know that it's hard to find somebody else who who has that distinctive expertise, and that you also find energizing instead of exhausting. And then what you do is when people come in with requests that don't fit into that sort of that that category, um, you let them know that this is not in your wheelhouse. Uh, but if I can help you in this other way, I would love to. And then instead of getting a reputation as just a nice person who can be bothered any time, you get known for having a particular skill. And then you get to give on your own terms, which means you're sort of proactive in, in setting, okay, here are the ways that I want to be helpful, rather than just letting other people dictate how so, you so, so give us that question to ask yourself again, because I, I really enjoyed that. And I have a feeling most people didn't truly digest it. So I'll give you my version of it. So for, yeah. you know, I, I, I also mapped all the different kinds of requests that I was getting. And the, it was really, it's two questions. One is, um, where am I adding unique value? Uh, versus, you know, there's either someone else or there's a resource out there that's totally substitutable for me. And then the second was, you know, there, there, there are things that we're good at that we don't like doing. Uh, so, you know, is when I help people in this way or, you know, when I, when I say yes to this, do I walk away, you know, energized instead of exhausted? What I found was a lot of the requests I was getting um, were, were no and no. <laughs> and I was like the, the clearest example was people would reach out for career advice. Uh, they think, you know, organizational psychologists, maybe you're, you know, what you can do is help me figure out what kind of job I should pursue or, you know, what what field I should go into. First of all, you know, there, there are tons of, of books and, and career planning guides that are, you know, much more comprehensive than my knowledge. Secondly, if I don't know you, I'm the worst person that you should talk to, right? I don't, I don't even like to, to give my students advice on what, what they should do because I don't feel like I have enough information to, you know, to really guess about that. And so I felt like I wasn't good at it. And I really didn't like it because I was constantly agonizing over whether I was giving people bad advice and steering them in the wrong direction. And so what I did then was I, I wrote up sort of a, a one page, here are all the good books that I've read on choosing a career. Uh, here are a couple of the tools that I think are helpful based on what my former students have recommended. And then when anyone reached out with, with a career advice request, I would just send that over and say, you know, if you have a question about worker psychology, uh, you know, I, I read a lot of studies for fun. Feel free to send your questions over. And then if, if there's somebody I can connect you with where it's mutually beneficial, I love making introductions. And so if I can share knowledge in my, my core area of expertise, or I can connect you to somebody that you can help or vice versa, ideally both, then, you know, let me know if I can do that. Okay, so so that's that's super interesting. I like that filter and I wrote it down. Where am I adding unique value, meaning the things that I uniquely provide? It's not something that other people provide. And number two, if I say yes to this, will I be energized or exhausted? My question for the people who are on here live right now, when people are coming up and are asking things of you, how many of you are saying yes currently to things that they can find the resource elsewhere and it also it drains you? And you're saying yes to it. If so, go ahead and put me in the questions box. (laughs) Steven says, I always say yes. (laughs) In the spirit of helping everyone who's committed their time to being here take action, you walk away from this right now. 
What's what's the one thing you can do? What's one thing you can start saying no to such that by doing it would allow you to take back more of your time and find more fulfillment in what you do? What would that be? Put that in. Michael says, God help me. I'm I'm too nice. <laughs> Get a little mean, Michael. Get a little mean. You know, you know what though? I I feel like I suffer from the the same curse and I got a piece of advice from a mentor at one point who said, look, what you have to remember is that every no is a chance to say yes when it matters most. Mm. And so a, a, no, a no is not saying I refuse to be helpful. A no is saying I want to be thoughtful about who I help and how I help and when I help. And if I say no to these three people, then I can choose the yes where I think it, you know, it really counts. Yeah. Anybody else taking notes besides me? That was, that was a writer downer. Adam, talk a little bit in give and take. You talk about uh, givers, takers, and matchers. Walk us through that a little bit. Sure. So the the basic idea is that I was curious about what people are after in their in their interactions at work, and I found that across industries around the world, these three styles come up over and over again. So you know, on the extremes, we have givers and takers. Takers are the people who are always asking, "What can you do for me?" Givers are the opposite. What can I do for you? And most of us don't want to be too selfish or too generous. And so we choose this middle ground, which is called matching, where you say, I'll do something for you if you do something for me. And you know what's, what's interesting to me about this is that, yeah, we all have moments of giving, taking, or matching, but we also all have a default style, which mm-hmm. is, you know, what's, what's our first instinct? Or how do we treat most of the people most of the time? And I, yeah, I was, I was really interested in, you know, what are, what are the implications of these styles, right? What are, how do you fare? What does it do for your success as well as your happiness? You know, if you choose to be more of a giver versus a taker or a matcher. What did you find? So the, the most surprising finding to me was that the, the, if you look at the worst performers in a bunch of different jobs, uh, I looked at data on engineers' productivity, medical students' grades, salespeople's revenue. The worst performers were consistently the givers. They were so busy doing other people's jobs, they ran out of time and energy to finish their own stuff, uh, which is sad. And so, you know, then I thought, okay, well, who are the best performers? And the good news is it wasn't the takers. Uh, Takers had a a pretty consistent pattern of rising quickly and then falling quickly. Um, And that was thanks to the matchers, because matchers are brilliant at, at sort of wielding the sword of justice and saying, look, you know, I believe in fairness. And so if you're a taker, I just feel like it's my mission in life to just punish you. And the way that, that a lot of matchers do that is, is they, they spread re, uh, excuse me negative reputational information. So they gossip. Um, but it's not just gossip, right? It's, it's, it's real information. And they warn people, do not trust this person. Uh, and that makes it really hard for takers to, to maintain their, their success. And so I thought then it must be the matchers who are the best performers, but they weren't. Every job, every organization I could gather data on, the best results belong to the givers again. And I thought that was such an interesting paradox, right? That the the givers went to the extremes, that they made up the majority of the least productive people and also the majority of the most productive people. And, um, you know, the really what I was trying to understand in writing the book was, how do you become a successful giver and how do you build a culture of productive givers so that, you know, the, the people who are helpful uh, end up, you know, rising as opposed to to sacrificing themselves for others. I remember hearing my partner Jay talking about that because um, they were looking at, um, especially from charity as well, in, in terms of contributions and to see that 
givers were the least, but then there was that little percentage of givers that were also at the top. What was the top percent doing that the bottom percent wasn't doing that created the gap? So we've we've covered a bunch of the the dynamics, but there are a few that we haven't. So you know we we talked about how I think one of the biggest differences between successful and failed givers is that they're thoughtful about how they help. I think that it's also worth noting that it's important to think about how your giving aligns with your your organization's goals. Mm. So a lot of failed givers, you know, they they helped in all these random ways. Like I'm going to show up and organize the chairs for you know company lunch. That's not that relevant. That's the one thing. <laughs> That's it, right? This is this is your mission in life. But <laughs> you actually want to think about, you know, what what's the mission in my organization and how do I align the helping I do with trying to advance goals that are important. You know, not not just kind of be be nice and friendly. And then uh, they successful givers also made choices about who they wanted to help. Uh, and it was a little different from mine, right? It, it wasn't just the the prioritizing what kinds of people matter to me. It was also saying, I want to figure out whether you are a giver, taker, or matcher. And if I find out that you have a history or reputation of selfish behavior, I'm not going to be as generous with you. A lot of failed givers just became doormats at the hands of takers. Mm. And one, that, that meant that they got exploited. And you know, they, they were often you know, having their energy drained. Uh, they were, in some cases, losing very real resources to takers. Um, but two, they were also reinforcing takers' behavior and letting them get away with it. And basically saying, yeah, you can walk all over me and I'm totally fine with that. Successful givers said, I am not going to reward selfishness. And if I find out that somebody's you know, been a taker, I am either you know, going to, to draw a boundary and say, you know what, I'll be a matcher in that relationship. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm, I'm only going to help them if they pay it back or pay it forward. Or I'm going to give them feedback and let them know that, hey, you know what, you come across as you know, pretty selfish here are some specific examples where you know you've you've been perceived that way, and I don't work well with people like that. And so then you give them a, a chance to try to change their stripes. For the people who are here live, where's your natural position? Are you a giver? Are you a taker? Are you a matcher? Where are you currently? Share that with us in in the chat box. I won't call anybody out. I got a lot of givers, some matchers. Nobody wants to say that they're a taker. <laughs> you know what what I find really interesting and this is where it lined up with the ideas of the one thing one of the three commitments is the idea the commitment of moving from E to P where E is entrepreneurial P is purposeful and so many of us every one of us in some area of our life is acting entrepreneurially we're relying on our natural abilities to succeed and the challenge is that has a ceiling of achievement for so many of the givers they just want to give 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 they say yes to everyone else and they end up saying no to themselves yeah, that's exactly right. And what I'm hearing exactly. you say is those top, those strategic givers were purposeful. There was a model or a system for when they would say yes, when they would give. Like you said, is this thing something that is in my unique ability? I can bring the value that no one else can. And does it energize me instead of exhaust me? Yeah. That's a system. That's exactly right. And I think that, you know, what's what's interesting about that, I mean, we're we're done, right? Boom. <laughs> What I do think is interesting about that is a lot of people think I, I've actually one of the most surprising things that's happened is I thought I was writing the book to convert takers into givers, mm. right? To say that you know one of the pieces of good news about the you know the success of of these different styles is that most of the time the givers failed in the short run and they succeeded in the long run. 
because you know at, at first it's really inefficient to spend all your time helping people when you're supposed to be doing your job. But over time, the relationships you build, the trust that you gain, the reputation that spreads, and also the learning, right? The, the time you spend solving other people's problems actually puts you in a better position to solve the organization's problems. Mm. Um, those advantages take a while to, you know, to add up. And so what we often saw was that the givers performed worse in, let's say, the first quarter of a sales cycle. But then by quarter three and quarter four, they were actually bringing in more revenue than the takers and matchers. Mm. And so I thought, you know, I thought, okay, this is a case for takers to change their stripes. And that, I don't think, has been the, the effect, if there's any impact to this book. The feedback I've gotten from readers that comes in really consistently is it's from givers who used to think that it was a sign of weakness and they were afraid to be that way. And they've said, oh, understanding that there's such a thing as a successful giver has, you know, has, like, has liberated me a little bit, right? To say, I don't, I don't have to hide the fact that I like helping other people. But even more than that, the, the comment has been, what I realized was that I thought it was not okay to have my own goals. That I thought being a giver meant I had to be altruistic and I had to care about other people. And then, you know, my, I would be on the back burner, right? That's the yes to other people, but no to myself. And, you know, when, when I studied successful versus failed givers, I kind of thought I was going to have a continuum from, you know, taking to giving. But it actually turned out to be a two by two because you could ask people, how much do you care about others and helping them achieve their goals? And then you could also ask, how much do you care about achieving your own goals? And those two questions, the answers are uncorrelated. And so when you draw the two by two, hmm. you see really quickly that you know there are takers who care about themselves and not others. There are apathetic people who care about no one. <laughs> they don't care about themselves or others. And then you have two kinds of givers. Givers always care about others. Failed givers are the people who care about others but not themselves. And successful givers are high in concern for self and concern for others. Mm. And they say, look, I want to help other people succeed, but I also want to succeed, right? It's okay to be ambitious for myself as well as other people. And they said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to hold those things in balance, right? I'm going to make other people more successful, but I will not do that at my own expense. And a lot of people confuse that for matching. They say, oh, okay, so you know, you're going to trade favors equally. No. Matchers expect something back from everyone they help. Successful givers consistently help with no strings attached. They're not looking for anything in return in each interaction, but they won't help at a, you know, a major personal cost. And they'll say, look, I will help other people as much as I can, but I'm not going to do that in a way that compromises my own goals. And that way I allow myself to be, to be helpful, you know, in a way that's not transactional or, you know, or uh, involving some kind of tit for tat, but I'm also, you know, keeping my own priorities in the, you know, in, in the field of vision. For all of you listening to this, how many of you are giving so much of yourself at the cost of your dreams? If you're here live, go ahead and put yes in the questions box. If you're listening to this later on the podcast, go ahead and give yourself an internal high five or be like, me, that's me, sad. I'm going to do better. We've all been there, right? If, if, as you listen to Adam talk about this, amazing that you are a giver. Our question is, how can you be purposeful about when you will give? How can you put parameters around what you will say yes to so that it makes it very easy to say no to everything else? Adam, I'm, I'm thinking back about everything we've covered over the last 40 minutes or so, and I'm thinking about how, uh, from an organizational standpoint, to open our minds to testing things out 
and and not fearing what employees are going to think, but just being open and communicating with them that we do want them to find fulfillment in what they do. I'm hearing the employees um, thinking that they have ownership in this and they can have conversations with their management to find the right seat on the bus. I'm hearing that it's okay to be original. It's okay to go against the grain and be a quote, nonconformist. And I'm hearing that uh, it's okay to say yes to other people strategically. What's the one thing that people are not doing that if they started doing immediately would completely transform the fulfillment they find in what they do? Ooh, well, there are a bunch of candidates for that, but you like one things here. So if you could only pick one. <laughs> so we said be thoughtful about who you help, about how you help. You also want to be careful about when you help. Mm. So one of my favorite experiments, this is Sonia Lubomirsky, uh, asked people to do five random acts of kindness every week. So let's say you're going to do five five-minute favors every week. Mm-hmm. You know, start to think about, okay, what are those things that I would want to do where I add distinctive value, where those are energizing? And she lets you pick whatever five acts of, of generosity you want to do. And you're going to do those every week for, for about three months. And what she does that you, you are not fully aware of is you get randomly assigned to, uh, to do those either in what I've come to call sprinkling, which is one every day. So you do one act of kindness on Monday, one Tuesday, one Wednesday, and you, you spread them out throughout the week. Or you're asked to be a chunker and you pick one day as your giving day every week. So Thursday, you do all five random acts of kindness. And this is, this is always fun to pull the audience. So uh, for those of you who are, who are live with us, if you could just weigh in on what you think is, is more energizing to do one random act of kindness every day as a sprinkler. Uh, so that would be the sprinkle option or to do uh, pick one day and do all five that day each week. That would be the chunker option. Mm, okay, let's see here. People are leading toward the sprinkles. Definitely, which These is, uh, which is almost always what happens. Uh, so in, in most groups, about 80% of the people will say, you want to you sprinkle, right? Do a little bit of every day. Um, of, of random acts of kindness every day, and you know you're you're kind of you're putting a little more spring in your step. You know you you feel like you're 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 a giver every day, and of course the data show the opposite, which is only one group gets happier, and that's the chunkers. So if you do one random act of kindness every day, it does nothing whatsoever for you. It might help other people, right? But in terms of your mood, useless. If you pick one day as your giving day each week and you stack together five random acts of kindness, there is a reliable and sustainable increase in your energy and your happiness, which I, I thought was pretty cool. Have you, have you done this Have you in your own life? Yeah. So one of the, the first thing I wanted to know is, is why does this work? And I, I think we're still trying to figure it out. But the most compelling explanation that I've seen is that it, it feels like you're really making a difference on that giving day. Uh, where, you know, as you add up those five, you feel like, okay, I, you know, I mattered today, right? I, I had an impact. Whereas one a day, who knows how those are going to go. And it's also a little bit of a distraction from the other things you're trying to accomplish. And the, you know, the, the chunking approach allows you to be completely focused. So what, what I ended up doing after I read this research was I said, all right, uh, I used to have like, you know, office hours spread throughout my week. And I would meet with, you know, a student here and there. I said, you know what, I'm going to pick, I'm going to pick two days a week and I'm going to make those full-blown student days. And I'm going to, I started actually doing office hours in four-hour blocks. And in that time, I might see, you know, 20 different students. 
And even if if nine of those conversations weren't helpful at all, I still know that I did something that was mm. a little bit youthful, right? Um, and I found also that a lot of those conversations ended up connecting to each other. And so I'd have a you know a student in office hours. There's another who's waiting outside, and then the, I actually invite them in to compare notes because they're asking a similar question. And so I find that I'm able to to connect people to help each other who are coming to me with similar requests. And so the the chunky approach had sort of a, a surprising efficiency that I didn't see coming. That's super interesting. Well, behind the scenes, as we this year when we started looking at our goals, one of the things that Jay has been challenging me on, um, I've been acting very entrepreneurial, sprinkling podcast episodes, for example, like just doing one a day, <laughs> just constantly doing it. Yeah, right. And and he's really been challenging me to get purposeful. Can I have a four hour time block every two weeks so that I am purposefully batching all of it at one point in time, so we're much more strategic. Everything else frees up because. Otherwise, I end up feeling like a chicken with my head cut off. Yep. So my, my question for people who are here is, what's one thing that you are consistently doing in your career that currently you're sprinkling when you could be batching? You could be compressing it and putting it into a block of time that you do on a regular basis and you put a model and a system behind it. Christina asked, how do you figure out what you want to do with your life as a young college student? I think you're going <laughs> to punted to the resource you created or, or she has too many options, ideas, passions. How do you begin to narrow it down? Well, I, I think probably the, the two books I've read on this that I liked the most were one, um, the element by Ken Robinson, mm. uh, which is, I think a, a whole analysis of that exact question. And then two, uh, Cal Newport wrote a really interesting book called so good. They can't ignore you yep. where he says, actually, you know, it's hard to be passionate about, truly passionate about something if you don't have skill in the area. And so often we get this backward. We think that, you know, I should discover my passion and then the, go become an expert in it. But you want to find out what, what you're good at uh, or what you enjoy being good at. And so Cal recommends kind of reversing this and saying, let's pick a skill that you really want to learn that you think is valuable and you're curious about and go do it for long enough to figure out if you discover a passion for it. Yeah, that was the single best piece of advice I got coming out of college. They said, what's the skills you can acquire today that will serve you for the rest of your life? And even when I hear Gary Keller talking about setting goals, the purpose of a goal is to be appropriate in the moment, to have a vision for where you want to go in your life so you can figure out what are the habits you can acquire today that will automatically carry you to that future reality. That's, that is solid advice. Um, Kevin asked, what advice do you have for parents who are trying to teach their kids this type of approach? In other words, better prepare them for a foundation that supports finding fulfillment. Hmm. Good question, Kevin. Yeah, that's a really good question. So there was a there was a study that I found uh, both familiar and disturbing uh, a few years ago. So the question was, what do parents want most for their kids? And when you ask parents that, what they say is, I want my children to be happy, and I want them to be givers, basically. You know, I want them to have good lives, and I want them to be good to others. And then you ask their kids what they think their parents want for them. And their kids overwhelmingly say, my parents want me to be successful. They want me to be a high achiever. And I think we have to be really careful about this because you know, we, we, do it, we do it without even realizing it, right? It's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to measure you know, it was, how generous was my kid this week, right? Or how much happiness did my child find this week? Whereas you know, talking about the goal they scored in soccer and you know, praising the, you know, the, the performance they gave in the school play. And, you know, talking to them about why it's important to ace their math test, right? 
those those are things that we we know we can track them precisely and you know we start to worry when our kids aren't doing well in those areas but i think we where we have to be cautious is if we only deliver those messages then we're basically telling our kids what matters most to us is their achievements and i think we need to make sure we spend at least as much time if not more time asking you know what made you happiest this week mm. what were some of your most disappointing moments uh, what did you do for others i i've actually learned from this to you know to ask our kids tell me tell me something helpful you did this week like how were you a giver and i'm always afraid of being one of those psychologists who screws up our kids but my, my wife is good at you know sort of keeping me in check on that um, but i find that to be a really useful conversation because it one it, it shows them that i care about it and two it also helps them to sort of crystallize this sense of themselves as caring about others right when they they then tell a story each week at the dinner table about how they helped somebody else it contributes to this this sense of self as i am a giving person that is so cool I love that. Again, Kevin, thank you. Thank you for the question. Uh, Bob asked, when hiring, can you screen effectively for givers? Yes, but don't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I like you, man. <laughs> so here, here's, here's the wrinkle. I, I, I've actually found over and over again in my own data, and there are other researchers who have replicated this with their data, that it's nice to have the right people on your bus, but it's much more important to keep the wrong people off your bus. Takers do more damage than, than givers do good. And so it's building a, a culture of, of generosity is not about bringing in the givers. It's about weeding out the takers. If you do that, you're left with givers and matchers. And you want that mix because the matchers will defend against the takers. But, but in the presence of givers, they act like givers. And so you want to give a matcher mix. So the, the key is to, to recognize when somebody is a taker. And there are a few ways to do that. Uh, one is to, uh, to ask a question uh, that I learned about from Alex Gorski, who runs Johnson & Johnson. When Alex hires senior leaders from the outside, uh, one of his last questions for them is, could you give me the names of four people whose careers you've fundamentally improved? Mm. And then he waits. And some people just sit there in silence. And you can imagine the wheels turning like, no, but I could give you four people whose careers I destroyed. Want those? But that's not the most common taker answer. Takers more frequently will say, here are four people whose careers I've advanced. And they're all above that person in the hierarchy. Everyone spends some time helping, but the takers are the ones who are always helping strategically to say, I want to be a giver to people who are powerful because that's how I get ahead, impress them with my generosity. And then they learn, you know, it's kind of a lot of work to pretend to care about everybody. So they let their guard down with peers and subordinates who get to see their true colors. Mm. That means it's a red flag if someone has a great reputation upward, but it's more mixed lateral and downward. It also means the more senior and powerful you get, the more unreliable your judgment is of other people's character, right? Because the, the, the more status and influence you have, the more motivated takers are to be fakers with you. And so even if you thought you were a great judge of character before, now you're compromised. And so, you know, what, what givers say in response to that question is usually something like, you know, I don't know if I've fundamentally improved anybody's career, but here are the four people I've worked the hardest to develop and mentor below me. And, you know, I hope they would say that I added some value. And I think that's the real test of a giver, right? How do you treat people who lack power? who can't necessarily do you any good. And then mm. there are a bunch of other ways, but I'm assuming you want to move to other questions now. Yeah, that, that was, I really like that one. I'm going through interview process right now. That's that's getting added to the mix. So I really enjoyed that. Thank you. How does, oh yeah, so you've got somebody who's a father, they're a husband, they're a business owner, they're starting in, in a new industry, and yet they're trying to do it all while being present for the kids, being present for the wife, thriving in the business. What does that look like? I'll let you know when I figure it out. <laughs> cool. Um, I'll, I'll take a stab at that one. Matt, 
Success is sequential, not simultaneous. The question that I have for you, where in your life are you trying to do multiple things at the same time? When in reality, it's not about striking balance because it doesn't exist. It's the counterbalance. When you're at work, when you're starting your business, are you all in on the business, 100% present, focusing on your priorities? And when you are with your family, are you all in? Is the phone away? Is the computer away? Are you all in? It's, it's, it's the counterbalance. And the truth is, you're not going to do it all. How can you get clarity on what your priorities really are in every single one of those areas? And are you acting in order of priority instead of checking email? There's a, there's a fun book on that by Tiffany Dufu uh, called Drop the Ball, where she poses a question that I, I've been reflecting a lot on that I, I found really helpful. The question is, what are you willing to choose to be bad at? What, what are you willing to let slide? And I think answering that is at least part of the way toward figuring out you know, how to achieve this mythical <laughs> state of work-life balance. Jeff asked of all your books, which, which should they read first? You've got Give and Take, you've got Originals, You've got option B. It's like asking about my favorite child. Which you have one. <laughs> I, I know people who have least favorite children, but... <laughs> no, I, um, you know, I, think, I think I guess it depends for me on, on what, what you're wanting to learn about. So, so who, uh, I'll tell you what I think. Go for each of them and who should read it for each? So for me, you know, give, give and take is about you know, sort of how to achieve a combination between success and uh, how to combine success and generosity. So, you know, how do you, how do you do good and do well at the same time is kind of an animating question of that book. So if that's something you care about, uh, potentially worth reading. Uh, Originals is, is about, it's kind of like a sequel to creativity. And, you know, it's, it's about this idea that, that a lot of us have, have compelling ideas and where we run into trouble is, is judging whether they're any good and then figuring out how to champion them effectively. And so, you know, if one of your biggest challenges is, you know, pitching your ideas, uh, getting your suggestions heard, getting startup funding, um, you know, selling effectively, I think Originals is probably best tailored to that. And then um, option D, Cheryl and I wrote it, um, you know, to, to capture a lot about life, not just work. Um, but that, that book is really about facing adversity and building resilience. Um, and also, to some extent, finding joy. So the, the premise is that we all face setbacks in our lives. Some of them are really serious um, and life altering. Others are, you know, more more minor and every day, like you had a bad day at work. And the question of that book is, is how do we learn to, to face those situations with strength? Um, but also, how do we help other people build resilience? So that when your colleagues or your friends or your, your loved ones are struggling, how do you show up and be there for them? And so that's, um, you know, that's kind of what, what, what option B is about. Well, there you have it our conversation with New York Times bestselling author, Adam Grant, that was a part of our One Thing webinar series, which if you want to see who we are bringing up next month, go to theonething.com slash webinar to save your spot for our next live webinar. What I love out of this conversation is the empowering message. The idea that whether you're a manager or you're an employee, you have DNA in your results, whether it be your results um, creating the environment as a leader or your results as an employee waking up every day and choosing to go work for that job. The question that we have for you is what's the one thing that you're not doing that if you started doing immediately would allow you to find more fulfillment in what you do? What's the one thing you're not currently doing that if you started doing immediately would allow you to find more fulfillment 
in what you do. The second half of our conversation with Adam, when we started talking about how he purposefully says yes and no to things, asking the question, am I you do I have a unique ability to help this person, meaning that I'm the only one? If the answer is yes, does this bring energy to me or does it exhaust me? Simply having that model suddenly makes it very clear on what you can say yes to and what you can say no to and recognizing that it's okay to say no. In fact, you must say no if you want to ever taste extraordinary results in your life. The number one lie of productivity is the lie that everything matters equally. As you listened to Adam's and my conversation today, where in your life are you treating everything like it matters equally? Where are you going big, trying to do all of it when you could be going small, focusing on that unique area where you can truly make the biggest impact and enjoy the greatest results? If this episode has helped you, we hope that you will leave us a review on your podcast player of choice. We read every single one of them, which is why we know that Spokane Home Guy, it was great seeing you at Family Reunion and thank you for leaving that review. Lil Pfeiffer, we know that you walk away from every single episode with at least one action item so that you gain more clarity in your life. Thank you for leaving that review. Folks, what's your biggest takeaway? And will you leave it in the form of a review for us? It helps us understand what we're doing well. And it also helps other people who are considering whether they're going to invest their most valuable resource, their time listening to the show. If you are one of the new people to the One Thing Podcast, please go ahead, click that subscribe button because we got two awesome episodes coming to you every single week. And trust us, you do not want to miss one of them. Until next time, how can you be the type of person who consumes content and backs it with action because that's where your extraordinary results lie. Thank you, and we look forward to being with you in the next episode.